You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do declare to you that you are holy, 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 that you are high and lifted up. You are above us and high in the heavens, and you are holy unlike us in all of the best ways. And yet you have given us Jesus that we might see you and know you and understand you clearly. You have given us your spirit as your people that we might understand. And so we pray that we might see Jesus tonight high and lifted up and that we might understand and believe in his work on our behalf. Through the work of your spirit, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is both a lower elementary night, so if you have a sticker on, and tonight is a torch night. So if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out with some of these great leaders and talk about this text and about how wonderful the Lord Jesus is, you guys have fun and we'll see you back here in a bit. Well, hello everyone. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to after the service. We're glad that you are here this evening. We are coming out of the last three weeks of a three-week look at Jesus's Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, his Sermon on the Level Place. And now we are back right in to the narrative of this story. Just a heads up for the next few weeks, uh, Marcy and I, my wife Marcy and I are flying out to England on Wednesday uh, for nine days, where I'll both spend uh, a day or two in the archives and then several days with my PhD supervisor. Uh, We're looking forward to a few days then just on our own. Uh, We missed two years ago 
on our 15-year anniversary, we missed doing something uh, for that anniversary because of COVID. So we're looking forward to like getting away for I think the first time in like eight years for the, just the two of us. So we're looking forward to that. And Kyle and Jordan will preach the next two sermons, the next two Sundays in Luke 7, and then three more weeks in Luke 8, two Sundays of one-off psalms, and then, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we'll start the book of Joshua in May, which will get us through the rest of the summer. But Luke, here we are. Uh, Jesus has been teaching about an upside-down kingdom. Uh, this upside-down kingdom, which is actually not upside-down, but right-side-up. It just looks upside-down to us. There is, there, that there is life and glory to be found in weakness and humility. But he hadn't just been teaching there in Luke 6. That sermon was not the first time and only time that we've seen Jesus teach. We might consider the first four chapters of Luke an introduction, a giving of Jesus's CV, his resume, who he is and why you should pay attention to him in like the first four and a half chapters. And then starting in chapter four at his first sermon in the synagogue, he actually taught lots of things. He taught about sin and uncleanness, fasting and the Sabbath. And in many of those instances, what he taught, what he said, infuriated the crowds, uh, infuriated religious leaders. His hometown wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff in chapter four. Uh, when he told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven, the Pharisees bristled. So if chapters one through four are Jesus's resume, we might consider uh, then chapters four through six, Jesus's teaching. And now we might consider chapters seven and eight, Jesus's salvation. This is going to take us several weeks to unpack, to get the full picture of what he means by what he is giving by salvation. But today we're going to see Jesus do some saving. These are two healings that are similar but different. And so we're going to first see a healing of faith, but then contrasted, but then compared to a healing of compassion. Two different healings, similar but different. And so first of all, a healing of faith. Verse one, we read, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, what sayings? What are the sayings? After he finished what sayings? All the sayings that he's been teaching about that we've spent the last three weeks to consider, the teachings about up and down, weak and powerful, poor and rich, things like blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, all of that. And so after all of that, after he had finished giving all of those sayings, verses two and three, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, a Roman, in the Roman army, a centurion is about the equivalent of like a a modern day major in today's American military. This is a respected man. This is a powerful man. This is actually and probably the wealthiest person that we have seen thus far in Luke's gospel. This centurion probably isn't like a millionaire or something in today's money, but he makes good money. He likely never goes to bed hungry. He is not the person about whom Jesus has just said, blessed is the poor, blessed is the hungry. And so as we're reading this, we've just thought about this entire amazing long sermon that Jesus has just given. And then as we read this, now a centurion has sent people to come to Jesus. And as we read this, like our eyebrows ought to raise a bit. Huh, how's Jesus going to respond to this guy? Will Jesus minister to the rich that he has spent a lot of time 
warning against. Will Jesus not only minister to the rich, but will Jesus minister to a Gentile, a a non-Jew? Not only just a non-Jew, but will he minister to a Roman? Now, if the Pharisees were upset about Jesus' interaction with Jewish tax collectors and their kind of uh, cooperating with the Roman Empire, wait till the Pharisees hear about this. An actual Roman centurion coming to Jesus. Will Je- what will Jesus' response to this man be? And yet, the centurion himself doesn't actually come, does he? He sends out an, an envoy, a delegation of Jewish elders who will speak on his behalf. Verse 4, and when they, the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he, the centurion, he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. They're saying, Jesus, don't dismiss us right away. I know, he's a Roman, but he's actually a good dude. He isn't here from Rome just to smash down any of our religious or cultural practices that don't happen to be Roman. He is sympathetic and even sensitive to the actual people that he has been given authority over. He's been sympathetic and sensitive to us. He's a good guy. And so this centurion has heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He has at least heard about his healing power. And to heal his dying servant, he has now sent these Jewish guys out on his behalf. At this point, it's unclear why he hasn't gone himself. But when they get to Jesus, they think they need to convince Jesus why he should do this, that he's a worthy man, that he's a good dude. He's not your typical Roman. So Jesus, because he's actually worthy, he's not your typical Roman. I know, I know he's a Roman, but he's, he's a good dude. You should consider his request. And so Jesus says, yep, let's go see. And Jesus went with them. And Apparently, as they're on their way, someone had run ahead to the house and said that Jesus had agreed to come, because then we read this in verse 6. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, other friends, different people, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Despite what his Jewish delegation said about him, that he was a worthy man, he's a good dude, now he has sent others to say to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. And so this second delegation comes out to stop Jesus from coming to his house. The centurion asked for Jesus to heal his servant, but he did not want Jesus to trouble himself, he says, to take time out of his busy schedule and his day to actually come into his Roman house. This is remarkable. A Roman centurion, a major in the most powerful army in the history of humanity, is saying that he is not worthy for an itinerant and possessionless teacher from Galilee to come to his house, to come under his roof. He knows that this man does not belong here because this man is something amazing, powerful, honorable, and he should not come into his dishonorable home. His friends go on with more of his words in verse 7. He said, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This was the intent of his first message. He's saying, Hey, my beloved servant is dying, and I've heard rumors that you, this healer, Jesus of Nazareth, is finally coming back to town. And so he tells his guys, Hey, run out there and see if he'll heal heal our guy. See if he'll heal this servant of ours. What he meant was, see if he'll just say, Yep, I'll do it. It's done. 
But when he hears that Jesus is actually coming to the house, it's, he's like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I asked from him. I'm a Roman. I'm not worthy of him. So quick, run up there quickly now before he gets here and clarify what I meant. Just have him say the word. Tell him that I know what it's like to just tell one of my subordinates what to do. And then that, because of my order here, something else happens clear across town. I know what that's like. I'm in the Roman military. I understand these things. Like even when Caesar from Rome gives an order, his requests and his demands from Rome then immediately happen, perhaps clear across the other side of the empire into the far-reaching corners of the globe where he has never even been. Caesar hasn't. But his orders can affect something on the other side of the globe. Jesus is like this, and I'm not worthy of him. He can heal our guy without having to actually come here. Tell him that. I know he can do it. Which they do. That's what they tell him. Jesus hears this, and now his eyebrows go up. He hears what this Roman centurion has told him. And by the way, have you ever really, really, really realized that? I don't think I've really realized this until I spent a lot of time in this text. The, the, we never see the centurion. We actually never hear his words from his mouth. We hear his words through other people, through his delegations. Uh, the centurion and Jesus never meet in this story. They're just talking through other people and that Jesus is doing things clear on the other side of town. And so, but when Jesus hears this request from his delegation, Jesus now gets, his eyebrows go up. He gets like the, the, the big eye emoji. Like, what? Like, this is crazy. I've never heard anything like this. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The point of this story is not the servant. The point of this servant is, or the point of this story is actually not the healing. The request and the faith of the centurion here is the point of Luke telling us this story. Jesus turns from the friends who have come from the centurion. They've told him what the centurion has said, and he hears what the centurion has said through them, and he says, whoa. And then he turns to the crowd that has been following. There's apparently a big crowd who has been following him, perhaps from the outskirts of town, because they want to see the magic happen. They're here for the magic show to see the healing, and there's a huge crowd, and he turns to them, and he says, as a spectator, he's saying, as a spectator to the spectators, he's saying, look at that. We can't even see this guy, but he's saying, look at that. That's incredible. This is something to learn from. He's saying, hey, Jewish people, the ethnic covenant people of God, learn from this. Learn from that. With echoes of John the Baptist, who said in chapter 3 that God can, from the stones, create new sons of Abraham. Ethnic or physical birth means nothing here. You ethnic people of God, be that. Repent, believe, give your life to the coming king. In his kingdom, John said in John 3, or in Luke 3, and here the same. Now Jesus is saying, I have not seen this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. And not just from any Gentile who's just some random non-Jew. He's never seen anything like this here, now coming notably from a powerful, from a wealthy Roman. Everything here is upside down. 
And those whom Jesus affirms and elevates are those who humbly and willingly place themselves under Jesus' authority, under his kingdom. Those who, in recognizing their unworthiness, come to his worthiness and say, you, not me, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy for you to even come into my home, but you can do this. I know you can. I need you in all things. I've just said earlier that we might sum up chapter, the whole of chapter 7 and 8 of Luke. All of these, these two chapters are all about salvation. And backing up at the end of verse 3, the centurion, when he sent his first delegation asking Jesus to come and heal his servant, the word heal there is literally save. He sent a delegation out to ask Jesus to come and to save his servant. And in response, Jesus saves him. He saves him. He heals him. He, he heals him. He certainly does that because we read in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. But we'll actually need this next story. We'll actually need the next two chapters We'll really need the rest of this book and actually the whole of the Bible to see what kind of salvation Jesus has just brought, what kind of saving he is bringing. So let's keep moving. Now from a healing of faith to a healing of compassion. Again, we've got Jesus approaching a town with his many disciples and a huge crowd behind him. And as he's going through the gate of this now very small village of Nain, middle of verse 12, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This woman, who is a widow, has just seen her son die. Likely this very day, because of purity laws, they would need to remove his body from the town immediately to be buried. His body has likely been wrapped in linen, and he is lying on a plank of wood, an open beer, uh, so that everyone in town can see his dead body, can see, can encounter, can experience and grieve together and alongside this mother. There's likely four men on either side of this plank of wood, this, on each corner of the beer leading out a woman who now following behind is now very much like Naomi in the book of Ruth. She has no husband. She has no son. If you weren't with us in November when we considered these things from the book of Ruth, she has now become one of the most vulnerable classes of people in society without government programs. She has no social security. And I don't mean like social security paychecks. She has no social society security. She has no security in society. She has no income. She has no familial structures left to care for her both now and in the future. She is the utter opposite of the Roman centurion. She is a woman. She is vulnerable. She is likely now very poor. This Roman centurion was wealthy, he was male, and he was powerful. We have two very different characters. What's interesting, though, is that she, unlike the centurion, doesn't come to Jesus. She isn't looking for Jesus. She is not trusting him. She is not reacting or responding to Jesus. She is a woman who is simply lost in her tears. She is lost in her loss, her grief, her vulnerability. And when Jesus sees that 
verse 13, he had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. Now, if any other person had just walked straight into town, saw this grieving mother and this funeral procession leaving town, it would have been uh, the most insensitive, perhaps the most cruel thing that any person could say. Do not weep. Stop crying. And if any other person had then continued on in what Jesus does here, it would have been one of the most magnificently cruel jokes that could ever be played on a grieving family. Verse 14, he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. If this had been any other person, everybody would have just been like, what's going to happen? And then nothing would have happened but not with Jesus. He's not any other person. In fact, before we go any further in this narrative, let's go back. Let's go back to Jesus's first sermon in chapter four. Remember at the synagogue when he unrolled the scroll and he read from Isaiah 61 and he announced his new teaching ministry in which he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people there back at the synagogue were confused because they knew Jesus when he was a kid. They watched him grow up. They know his family. And so they respond essentially with, wait, so what are you saying about yourself, Jesus? Hey, now don't get too big for your britches now, son. Like, they're like, we know who you are. What are you talking about? And how did Jesus respond there? Remember back in Luke 4. How did he respond when they said, what are you talking about and who are you? He said, he says that in the time of Elisha, there were many lepers, but none of them were cleansed besides Naaman the Syrian. And then he tells them that in the time of Elijah, while there were many widows in, that were affected by famine, uh, Elijah was only sent to the widow at Zarephath. And we talked about several weeks ago when we were in Luke 4 that it seems like Jesus is just giving like Old Testament Bible story hour. He's just bringing up two random Old Testament stories, but he wasn't. He was talking about how it is always so that the people of God reject God's word and so that the word of God goes out to other people who will receive it. But in those two stories, we didn't spend too much time on Elijah and Elisha and Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath. Let's take just a second there. You'll see why in just a second. But in 2 Kings 5, Naaman, he's this powerful military ruler, this leader of the Syrians. And this powerful Gentile military ruler sends out a delegation of messengers to the prophet of the Lord to be sent to Elijah to be healed of leprosy. And after the delegation comes and nothing really happens, then Naaman, the Syrian, he himself finally goes to Elijah's house and he asks Elijah what he should do. But he never really sees Elijah. Why? Because Elijah never comes out of his house. And, the, and Naaman's like banging on the door saying, come outside. Do you not know who I am? You need to come and greet me for who I am. I'm this powerful Syrian military ruler. And he gets into a rage because he won't come outside. 
that the man of God, when he, this powerful man, comes to the man of God, the man of God should come out, recognize his greatness, and in this display of huge religious uh, healing, call on the power of God, the God of Israel, to come down and heal him of his leprosy. After all, he tells Naaman, I have bathed in the cleanest and the most beautiful rivers in the world. Don't you know who I am? Come and heal me. Elisha never comes out, and finally Naaman's servants convince Naaman that, hey, so through the door, he's told you what you should do. Just go bathe in the Jordan, so maybe you should just go do that. And he does, and he's healed. Now, any alarm bells going off here? Alarm bells of similarities between Naaman and the centurion of powerful Gentile military rulers sending delegations to the man of God to be healed of not even seeing the man of God, but just talking to him of similarities, but dissimilarities of, on the one hand, uh, of the centurion saying, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to Naaman saying, get out here and see me because I'm so worthy. Now, if that story is already floating around in our imagination from Luke 4, then when we get to the widow of Nain here in Luke 7, we'll maybe pretty quickly remember the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. While Elijah is staying with her and her son, her son gets sick and dies. She says to Elijah, she says, what, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She thinks that Elijah has brought the death of her son. Elijah then says, hey, give me your son. And in a really weird scene, he takes the dead body of the, of the son upstairs. He lays him on his bed and then three times stretches his body out on this dead body of this boy. It's an ordeal. It's weird and it's an ordeal. We'll save the unpacking of all that for someday when we preach through Kings. But finally, in 1 Kings 17, the boy is revived. And the woman, this widow mother who had just lost not only her, her husband but her son, says in 1 Kings 17, she says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So back to the grieving widow of Luke 7. Jesus, not needing to take the body of this young man away somewhere and do some like stretching exercise on him, but with just a word, with just a word of compassion and of power, Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. In verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. The same phrase that the author of Kings says that Elijah gave the boy to his mother. And if these two stories of the man of God, the prophet of the Lord, who both speaks on behalf of God and brings the miraculously kind and powerful works of God to earth, if these stories are how Luke is understanding the life, the role, and the ministry of Jesus, then what happens next actually shouldn't be surprising to us. Verse 16, back in Nain, fear seized them all, the crowds, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. A great prophet, a new Elijah, a new Elisha is here among us. We should listen to him. What's more, God has visited his people. A phrase that is often used in the Old Testament for when God hears the cries of his people in Egypt, and he comes to them. 
He visits them that he might deliver them out of slavery to save them, which is exactly what we saw in Luke 1 when Zechariah said, uh, when he saw the infant Jesus, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, he has redeemed his people. What kind of salvation? When he was talking about a horn of salvation, was Zechariah talking about in Luke 1? He said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So what do we do with all this? What's the point of all this? What is Luke trying to do here in telling us these two anecdotes of Jesus' healing and seemingly trying to connect these two anecdotes to Old Testament anecdotes? Well, first, these aren't isolated stories. They are all going somewhere. Remember, these gospel accounts are all passion narratives. They are crucifixion narratives with extended introductions. This, everything that we are reading right now, is just introduction to Jesus' coming death and resurrection. What does this have to do with that? But what are these two stories doing here by themselves? Luke is building his case for Jesus as the king and the ruler of the universe, who both demands the worship and demands the loyalty of all of the peoples of the world. But he also, this prophet of the the Lord, also invites and enables the worship and loyalty of all peoples of the world through his humility, through his compassion, through his love. Jesus is certainly a prophet and an agent of God. The people of Nain respond rightly. That is a good response. This, truly, a prophet of the Lord has arisen. Someone here is speaking on behalf of God, but I think what Luke is wanting to uh, get us to respond to their response with is, yes, but is he more? Is he more than just a prophet? Back to the centurion story. Most of us, unless we are actually in the military, we live the most of our lives in structures of authority that are more or less kind of ill-defined. Yes, we have managers and we have bosses, but, well, we may have teachers and governmental authorities in our lives, but it's often unclear what happens when we either deliberately disobey those authority structures or harbor resentment in our hearts internally for those authority structures. It's often unclear what happens if we push the limits of those structures of authority, which we as humans, certainly as Americans, love to do, to push the limits of authority structures. Like if you do something outside of or against the authority that you have in your life and it's minor enough, if you do it just with some subtlety, then it's unlikely that anyone's ever going to notice. It's actually very likely that you'll get away with these pushing the limits of, of authority without anyone knowing or caring. And maybe if you're not very sneaky and subtle about it, you might get called into the principal's office. You might get called into the HR office, uh, but likely it will come with a warning. You have to be pretty brazen to get actually suspended or fired. And so, if we live in these ill-defined authority structures in which our American culture catechizes us to actually believe it is good and virtuous to push those limits of authority if you think that they don't make sense, 
if these authorities are asking you to do something uh, that don't really make sense. It's actually good to push against those. And then we subconsciously or even very consciously then overlay those expectations of how it's good and right to push against authority that we don't think makes sense. And then we overlay that of how we think about God's authority in our life. As long as this doesn't hurt anyone, as long as it's minor and subtle enough, God really won't notice, know, or care. As long as I am just pushing it, but not too bad, then who really cares? I expect, perhaps, that I'll go a little too far, and maybe I'll get called into the principal's office of God's correction in my life at some point, and hopefully I'll just do, do not quite enough to get expelled or suspended or something. But in the end, it is actually good, it is actually virtuous for me to push the limits of what I have come to believe to be true and right, the difference between right and wrong in my life, if the things that God is calling me to do doesn't really make sense, that I don't really agree with. But Luke is showing us that Jesus isn't some principle. He is not just some insightful religious teacher. He is not some self-help podcaster. He is not just a miracle worker. He is not just a healer. He is not just a prophet. He is that, but he is more. He is the man of God that we might know the word of the Lord in his mouth is truth that nothing he speaks is untrue, that he speaks for God because he is God. The centurion recognized this, at least the authority of Jesus's word that stretches far beyond where Jesus is physically present, which actually, actually this story brings enormous comfort to us as well, that Jesus can have authority and actually transformative, miraculous power far beyond where he is physically present. This is an enormous comfort to us today, who none of us have Jesus physically present with us. But this is also, this centurion shows us that we cannot just pick and choose which parts of Jesus' authority we think are okay, or which part of his authority are actually not problematic to our uh, current sensibilities, which parts of our life we're willing to give him and which parts of our life we are going to withhold. If we place ourselves in that position of picking and choosing which parts of Jesus' teaching we will listen to, of picking and choosing which parts of our lives we will give him, give him, then who is the authority? We are. We get to say, I like you. I'll take the parts that I agree with. But while the centurion's faith ought to be a model encouragement to us, the initiating compassion of Jesus to the grief of the widow ought to be of warm assurance to us. It is not her faith that saves her son. It is Jesus who saves her son. It is certainly not the faith of the son that saves him. He's dead. All of a sudden, like, bam, he like opens his eyes and there's sunlight he hears shouts, and then while he might see the shrieking and like bouncing silhouette of his mother back there on, in the foreground, he then, his eyes focus on a face of compassion, of kindness, 
A man who looks straight into his eyes and says, get up. And this man who has come and initiated with miraculous power in this man's life has now changed the course of his life forever. And such is the initiating gaze and grace of Jesus that invades and interrupts every Christian's life. That we, like this man being carried out in death, I have no idea why you have come to me. I have no idea why you have chosen me, why you have invaded and initiated and interrupted my life of death that you might bring me into your life. Who am I, having lived my life in indifference at best to who you are? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? This is the amazing, interrupting grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus who gazes into our eyes and says, you're mine, get up, walk. But before we wrap all this up, this event here in Nain, along with many others in the gospel accounts, should absolutely wreck the myth that if you have enough faith, God will act, God will heal. And the flip side that if you continue in sickness or some other trial, that it must be because of your lack of faith. In John 4, Jesus healed the son of a man who thought no more of Jesus than he was like a party magician. In Mark 9, another father comes to Jesus with a son who is demon-possessed, and he tells Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. He is waffling between struggling with faith and doubt. And Jesus responds, not in an equal measure responsive to the level of this man's faith, but in overwhelming measure, like blowing it out of the water, which is another thing that we should say about Jesus' works of healing and of miracles. While they are done, yes, out of mercy and compassion, he sees this woman's tears and he acts out of compassion. They are also always announcements of his messianic kingdom. But the prophets looked for a time when the Savior would come, and with him would come the forgiveness of sins. In Isaiah 6, 61, in Luke 4, Jesus is saying that the blind will see, the lame will walk, the mute will talk, the dead will live, and that God would begin the huge work of undoing the curse of death and brokenness from Genesis 3. And so when Jesus goes around healing, it's like he's bringing little pockets of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of earth, little spheres of the kingdom of light and life into the kingdom of darkness and death. When he heals, he is pronouncing, I am the Messiah. I am God undoing the curse. He's walking around making all the sad things come untrue. And so when this woman's son is revived and brought back to life, it's like we are skipping to the, end, the very end of the story. We are getting to the very end of Revelation in which God is wiping the tears away from individual faces and individual eyes. And Jesus is like ripping a page out of the future and he is like gluing it right here in the present. All of the happy ending things, he is saying, I'm bringing that now. And so what should we say today? Should we pray for healing today? Yes. God can certainly heal today just as easily as he did through Christ and the apostles. Should we expect him to? And then if he doesn't, then must it be because of our lack of faith? No. God chose not to remove Paul's thorn, whatever that was. Paul says he asked three times for this thorn to be removed, some seemingly some physical ailment, and God never removed it. 
We have example after example in both the New Testament as well as Christian history of men and women of great faith in God who are never healed of their physical ailments. In fact, one reason that their faith is so strong is not in spite of their ailments, but because of them. Remember, like we thought about a few weeks ago, Kyle, after we sang the song in the valley, said, we expect that God will be with us when he takes us out of the valley. That is the miraculous work of God. But no, the miraculous work of God is to be with us in the valley. When, G- when God doesn't remove Paul's thorn, Jesus comes to him and says, but my grace is sufficient for you. I am with you. The true disciples of Jesus are following Jesus here, not only when they think he's useful, when things are just peachy in their lives. For us, when we have full bellies, warm houses, healthy bodies, and income for entertainment, and then some, we can be convinced that we don't, we don't need God's help. We don't have a need for Jesus. And then we come to him when things begin to get bad. But here's the thing, they're always bad. It's just an illusion. We don't have control over anything, and that's true. We Americans think that we can control our lives, that we can somehow We think that our bodies are amazing, so we have some control over keeping our hearts beating or something. That we can somehow keep our investments growing. That we can keep our loved ones safe. That we can somehow plan for and keep a healthy, peaceful, happy life. But we actually do not have control over any of that. When the centurion realized that he had zero control over his servant's health, he came to Jesus. And the reality is, is that he had zero control over his servant's life before his servant got sick, before anyone ever gets sick. Jesus upholds the, word, the world by the word of his power. The fact that our hearts aren't all exploding right now is amazing. Or that we somehow, it's crazy, go into like this seven, five, six, seven, eight, nine hour state of unconsciousness every night. Every night, you go unconscious for many hours, and then we wake up again, and then we do it again. This is incredible. Or that we don't more often get destroyed by asteroids, or what the universe is trying to kill you in a million ways. It is all grace. Just as Sophia shared last week in her testimony of her coming to life in Jesus, we have no control over any of it. But with incredible blessings, Jesus comes and he gives us himself. That he gives us life and joy and contentment and salvation from sin and salvation from self and salvation from judgment. He brings us adoption. That he moves us from the courtroom of God's justice into the family room of God's love. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you forever. All of this offered freely to those who would believe, who would come to Jesus and say, I am not worthy, but you are. I know you can do it. I know you have the power. I submit myself to your kingship, to your word, to your authority over every bit of my life. And so Luke here puts his readers in the same place as a person who would have been present in both of those crowds. We, as readers, should place ourselves as if we were present, observing the magic show. We came to see the magic, and we are seeing both of these healings now. And the first crowd that Jesus turned and he said, look, Look at that. I've never seen anything like that in all of Israel. Learn from that. He's saying that to us as well. 
believe as the centurion does. And then in the second crowd, perhaps you're walking there along in the crowd and you see this dead man sit up, stand up, and walk away. This does not happen. Who is this man with this kind of authority over life and over death? And so if you were to see both of these events, Jesus bringing a dying man to full health by the word of his power across town and then seeing a physical, literally dead man stand up and walk away. You saw both of these things with your eyes and then shrug your shoulders and say, huh, that is interesting. And then carry on with your life. This would actually not be an intellectual rejection of Jesus. This would be a moral rejection of Jesus. You have seen and heard and observed something so great and so supernatural and so powerful and so good and right and true and then say, nope, don't need that. You're placing yourself over and above the powerful and the good and the right and the true. This is perhaps true of some of you in this room who continue in in indifference to the power and the glory of Jesus. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you, James says. Go down so that Jesus might raise you up in his character, in his wisdom, in his love. Come to him tonight in initial repentance that he might heal you, that he might save you. He will do it. He can. He will. But it is also true for we disciples of Jesus who later on, like Peter, will forget who Jesus is. And in the smaller moments of our lives, choose self. Choose our authority over the authority of Jesus. And so stories like this urge us to behold the man. Behold the Son of God. Behold the God-man, the King in all his beauty who has lived so that we may not die and who has died that we might live. This is what he has come. Behold him. Bring praise and honor to his courts. Bring wisdom, power, and blessing for endless ages we'll adore the King in all his beauty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do acknowledge you as king. We do honor you as king. Help us, give us, fill us more with uh, the vision of your authority. Not a arbitrary and capricious authority, but a good and right authority that wants to give out of compassion for the good of his people. Help us to see that clearly. Help us to submit our lives more and more, every bit of our lives, all of our desires and our actions and our reactions to you because you are good. Help us to see you in your beauty, Lord Jesus. Help us to give us or give our lives to you both individually and as your people. We submit to you. You are good. We love to be your people. Help us to love even more, to love to be your people. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.